Good to see you. Good to be here. If you have your Bibles, please flip them open to Revelation 11, and we are seeking to make a serious dent in this chapter, this service. Uh, if you guys were with us last time, uh, Scott and Bo got into it and started going over this very intriguing section of Scripture. What is going on here, Sean? What is John witnessing? Well, just as a recap, the book of Revelation is a vision that was given to the Apostle John. The Apostle John, being one of the main eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, essentially got to relive everything that was significant about that. The book of Revelation is singular. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, but we're given a lot of insights into how that's going to be done ultimately in history. And in this section of Scripture, as far as the things that generally get our attention, the plagues, the wrath, and so forth. We've give, been given part of the sixth trumpet judgment, a series of three sections of judgments, seven aspects to each. And at this point in human history, almost half the planet's been wiped out. But just like in the seal judgments, there's a pause to let us know God's still working in the midst of this frankly, overdue wrath, that uh, John's then taken aside by an angel and told to do the same thing that had been instructed to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And what's interesting about that as well, uh, the elder and Bo were able to go into it briefly last week, but just to recap, uh, it was largely a quotation from Ezekiel 40 through 42, if you're taking notes and want to read this on your own time. But the interesting aspect of it was, and this is verse 1, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, that's three and a half years. And then we're introduced to these two interesting individuals that will largely be the focus of our study. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So noting that point specifically about the outer court not being measured, Ezekiel did, but in Ezekiel 42 and verse 20, it notes that that was meant to be cut off from the measurement from the common or literally the profane. Now, the reason for this, uh, being given such a repulsive description, some believe, and good Bible teachers have theorized this, that this is going to be a section of the Temple Mount that will allow for the preservation of the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock, for those of you familiar, is that large hexagonal gold dome that was refurbished by Saddam Hussein and uh, has been, interestingly enough, destroyed by earthquakes at least 20 times since the point it was built. But um, interesting themes aside... What's inscripted on it is a quotation of Surah 112 from the Quran, God is not begotten, nor does he beget, a direct polemic or refutation of Christianity, that God would have a son and that he would care about us in any way. And what's interesting about that, aside from this isn't actually what the Quran teaches in Surah 610 and uh, 19, 19 through 21, it does acknowledge God could have a son if he wanted to. And of course, that uh, that point is moot, but avoiding those rabbit trails. We're talking about the first half of the tribulation. 
the Antichrist hasn't revealed himself as God yet, but there is a temple here to be measured. And we're going to clarify not just in the context within this passage, but other details as well. Uh, hopefully a grasp not only of the timeline of where we find ourselves, so that you all can grasp how we're handling the text, but to equip you on your own as well, so that we can give you more information rather than less as far as the identity of the two witnesses. Now, we're told about their... Uh, fashion decisions, and their uh, contract, if you will. They're going to be prophesying for three and a half years. Before we get into the significance of all that, is there anything we want to go over before we get into that? Uh, no, I think it's good. All right, so sackcloth. Uh, obviously, you and I are wearing denim and uh, cotton. What would that material be, and why would we be told that? Uh, yeah, so uh, your dad and Bo went into it last week in a little bit more detail than we'll get into today, but apparently, essentially sackcloth is just burlap. It's really uncomfortable, itchy, gross material, and it was a sign of mourning, usually. So if someone were to clothe themselves in sackcloth, it was because they were mourning. So back in the day in America, we had a sign of mourning, and that was when people wore black. So when people were wearing black, that was supposed to be a sign that you were in mourning, that someone that you knew and loved had passed away, and that people were to approach you in that kind of sense. We don't really have that anymore. I think Johnny Cash just wore black too much. People were like, that's kind of a cool look. I don't think I want to reserve that for morning anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing red and blue because we're in Tucson. Yeah. <laughs> but ever since then, people don't really have a sign anymore. But in the day that we're talking about, John's time frame, they would have understood this as a sign of mourning. So these prophets are coming. And remember where we're at in the tribulation. Whenever there is a uh, volley of judgments from the Lord there's a little bit of a reprieve. There's a little bit of a break where God shows us that, hey, I haven't given up on the world totally. There is still a hand that is being reached out. I still want people to be saved. So these, these guys are there, and they're going to have a very uh, provocative ministry, if you want to put it that way, a very in-your-face ministry, but there's still a sign in them of mourning, that they're not like super happy that people are being killed all over the world, that they do want people to be saved, that they share God's heart with which is pretty beautiful. Yeah, they do the work of God, but they share the heart of God. Instead of anger, they're expressing grief over a world that's on the verge of experiencing, if not already, the judgment of God in the ways they already have. And that's expressed not just in the way they dress, but drawing specific detail to this. Uh, also noting the end times that we're living in, the or I guess that we're reading about, uh, when Jesus made the prediction in Matthew 24, I believe verse 15, regarding the abomination that causes desolation, it's important to note that that hasn't happened yet, but all the pieces have been set up for it to, and that's what we'll be discussing in the next four chapters. Uh, what's also interesting about this event in history is, uh, especially regarding the different views, we want to make sure you again have more information, not less. Regarding Jesus' statement, when you see the abomination that causes desolation take place, so that's an expectation of the future, generally people who take the approach that this is already fulfilled, that this doesn't have any bearing on the future as far as we're concerned, would say all that was referring to in Daniel chapter 9 was Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek dictator, and he oppressed the Jews at a certain point in history, set up an altar to Zeus, who he claimed was him, and then uh, slaughtered a pig on the altar, which in case you have Jewish friends or not, is a no-no. 
When he defiled the temple in this way, a persecution broke out of the Jews, and the celebration of Hanukkah celebrates the end of that reign. But Jesus still speaks of this abomination as future tense. Now, this is where the fork in the road appears. Those who go left would say, and I don't mean that in a significant sense, but those who go left would say, well, that was just referring to the destruction of the temple. The immediate context of that, that's all Jesus was talking about. But the problem was Antiochus didn't destroy the temple. He got it dirty, but he didn't break it. Likewise, if I'm going to say that Jesus was mistaken in still referring to it in the future tense, because the whole Greek incident happened 200 years before Jesus said those words, I'm in a lick of trouble. We don't want to make assumptions based on, and especially through anti-Semitism, dismissing the idea that Jews have any purpose in God's plan. What's also interesting, and this is where we tend to turn as far as the handling of this text, in order for the Antichrist to repeat what that Greek dictator did, there has to be something for him to do it to. The temple is in existence. The two witnesses are preaching on that temple, and that will be significant in regarding what we're told about them. But what's also interesting about this is that when the Antichrist's final seven years on this earth will be, of course, heavily involved in the temple up to the halfway point, in the existing Holy of Holies, he is going to, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 through 4, sit in the basically the Holy of Holies, the place where God was directly to be worshipped, sitting on the throne of God, declaring that he is God and demanding worship. And we know that, of course, at this point, the Jews will know they've been bamboozled, but they will first sign up to the Antichrist peace plan, not because he's defiling their temple, but some have believed because he's offering to rebuild it. Some even claim that the temple will be in the process of being built and the Antichrist will see through its completion. Others that it'll be built before the tribulation even starts, but the point being made is this, the temple isn't on the Temple Mount right now, but it will be. And we have this expectation because of these future events. And what's also interesting to note is that while in Isaiah 28 and verse 15, notes Israel will make this covenant with death. They will sign on to the Antichrist false peace plan that we saw in the first plague of the tribulation. That false peace will, of course, not only quickly be broken, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 will be wholeheartedly accepted by anyone who doesn't love the truth. Now, it breaks our heart to know that the majority of Israel today doesn't believe in their Messiah, that they don't desire to know him personally. We know that's not going to always be the case. The question is, how did we get from Revelation 6 to 7? How did it, we have that Jews who were signing on to the Antichrist program are suddenly coming to numbers of not only faith in their Messiah, but passion for him? to save more people at that point, that point in history than any other time in history. And noting the heart of an evangelist as well, where did they get that from? Who discipled these guys? Did the rapture happen? They went, oh, I should have watched that Kirk Cameron film. No, they're going to say, wait a minute. These guys in Jerusalem are doing things that are very familiar. These guys in Jerusalem are preaching words that I've known since my bar mitzvah and before. These guys are performing miracles. Wait a second. So noting that point, and as we continue on into verse 4, we're going to be given some details about them. Not names, but certainly deeds and certainly deeds. So 
Verse 4, these are, this is referring to those who are clothed in sackcloth, the two witnesses, the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. How long was that? Three and a half years. And they have power to, over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, a dearly beloved brother in the Lord, fellow Bible teacher, Levi Lusco, made the observation in his study in Revelation saying, I wonder if they're going to have a bit of fun with this. <laughs> you know, just they have uh, the opportunity in the afternoon to maybe mess with some people, locusts buzzing around their ears and stuff. But no, obviously, there'll be a reason for these things. But why are we told, first of all, about the lack of rain? We don't know about that in the desert. The fire coming out of their mouths, I'll refrain from irony, and the turning of water to blood that mentions all plagues. Why these three details and why do they get compared to lampstands and olive trees? Yeah, so there's a lot of Old Testament references here, a ton, actually. Uh, so we're going to try to do our best to help you guys understand what these references are and where you can look them up on your own time. The reference to the olive trees and the lampstands is actually a reference to a pretty obscure book in the Bible, the book of Zechariah. If you've ever read through the book of Zechariah before, you might feel like you're on a bit of an acid trip. His visions were a bit trippy, as they would say. And Zechariah actually had this vision of these, this really vivid vision, this really interesting vision, where he sees these two, uh, again, olive trees and lampstands, and actually they're kind of like self filling lampstands. So uh, back in the day before we had beautiful fluorescent lights and electricity and things like that, your light source had to be filled. You would have to fill it with oil and it would burn. And there was lampstands within the temple that had to be burning all the time. And kind of the guy who I guess drew the short straw or whatever was in charge of filling up the lampstands. And every organization has that, the job that just no one wants, but someone has to do. And, uh, you know, in, in the Marines when we were in Afghanistan, it was the guy who had to burn the poop. That was, that was the job that no one really wanted. And that was a, a lot of fun. In the temple, it was burning this oil. It was refilling it. So Zechariah gets this vision of these trees, these oil trees that are kind of filling the lampstands. So it's like these lampstands that are just never running out. And what was that a picture of, Sean? Well, in the book, fortunately, Zachariah was not shy of asking questions. He, if, he was asked, what is the significance of this? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> what is it? And he's directly told. You can, again, put this in your notes, Zechariah 4, 11 through 14. And the context of the statement, by the way, is when the governor of Israel at this time, not the king because they had been disposed by Babylon, and now we're under the authority of Persia. But Zerubbabel, who was the governor during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm sure you know those names, uh, was basically seeing hard times in clearing off the temple's foundation. And he was told, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, this rubble will become a plain. I'll see you through to this project. And interestingly enough, where are we at when their name, or in this reference rather, comes up again? It's at the temple when some serious cleaning up needs to be done, but we'll get more on that in a second. Verses 11 through 14, though, note that point. These are the two anointed ones who stand before the God of the earth, a direct quotation in Revelation. Right. So noting that point, then there's a immediate historical context. 
these two witnesses are referenced to be the ones that are seeing God through. They're going to be given the supply to get this job done. Right. So that oil is a picture of, a lot of people say it's a picture of the Spirit, right? right? The Holy Spirit moving in them and having just kind of like be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? It's just constantly filling them and they're able to do the work that God has set for them. Yeah. You maybe run out of energy, but you won't run out of strength or will. Exactly. And, and what do lamps do? They light, yeah. right? So that's, that's it. They're lights unto God's plan and purpose. And then that we see there's a second fulfillment. You'll see a lot of these where we see in the future, there will also be two anointed ones, these lampstands that will essentially rejuvenate Israel with the oil they've been lacking for so long. This uh, revitalization of the temple, if you will. No, absolutely. So really cool reference. For that reason, there have been some who believe that one of the identities of these witnesses is Zerubbabel. Yeah, in Habakkuk, so, or Haggai chapter 2. That's right. So they'll look at this reference and they'll say, oh, okay, this is Zerubbabel. This is one of the identities of the guy. And that is one of the, the theories, one of the going theories. And we'll go into the reasons why they... I'm doing this on purpose, by the way. I'm hold, rubbing a ring on my finger. Uh, the reason why is because the prophet Haggai says, you are my signet ring. You're anointed for this purpose. The problem with that interpretation on our part, though, is that the second witness, no one else is referred to as that in the Bible. They believe the other witness is Elijah for reasons we're about to get into, but he's never called God's signet ring. Right. So take that what you write. Of the identities of the witnesses, the most consensus would be Elijah. Uh, why? Well, there's stuff in the text, but there's also some prophecies that need to be fulfilled. So let's, let's look at the text first, and then we'll kind of backtrack to some prophecies in books like Malachi to see why people believe generally that this one of the identities is Elijah the prophet. Uh, verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecies. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there. So if you've read through the book of 1 Kings, this is very Elijah-esque, right? Every, everything that we're seeing here are things that only the prophet Elijah have done right? Uh, and his protege, Elisha. So Elijah, Elisha never called down fire on people and he true. never stopped it from raining. That's he true. had a lot of miracles, true. but Elijah had the exclusive use of those miracles. Right. right. So Elijah had a very interesting ministry to the northern part of Israel during the probably the most wicked king that Israel ever had, a guy named Ahab. Who wasn't really in charge. Who wasn't really in charge. It was mainly Jezebel, uh, someone who's more famous or infamous, should I say. And during his ministry of going against their prophets, where they were prophets of Baal, which was one of the most bloodthirsty and evil pagan deities out there, uh, Elijah was able to stop the rain for, I think it was Three, three years. And a, three and a half years and a half verbatim. Years. James chapter 5 repeats that. We'll exactly. get to that in a second. Exactly. So three and a half years. And then there was times where Ahab wasn't too happy with the fact that Elijah wasn't exactly on his side and somehow was giving information to the enemy that couldn't have possibly happened. So he tries to send people to kill Elijah. And every single time that happens fire comes down and consumes them. So yeah, this is in 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, you are, are you a prophet of God? If I'm a prophet of God, may fire come down and consume you all. And it did. And yeah. then they, that happened three more times before they took a hint. And the last guy... Please, who, just, you know, just, just... I got a family. Me, man. Yeah. And uh, just Elijah came me. with him very politely. Uh, and he also called down fire on the altar to disprove the false prophets of all. In 1 Kings, I believe it was 9, uh, 20. 
I mean, I'm sorry, 18. 18. 18. So uh, those are definite clues or hints that Elijah is one of these people. Another thing that point, people point out to is Elijah never actually died. So uh, Elijah was actually caught up into heaven with chariots of fire, and we see in this section that these prophets will be killed. So these witnesses will be killed, and then God will assume, assume them into heaven. So some people look at that and say, well, it's given to man once to die, and then comes judgment, so people can't die twice. Now, it's not necessarily true, because there are people who did die twice, guys like Lazarus. Uh, actually, it's funny, I, I learned this just a couple years ago. They found a ossuary, a bone box, mm -hmm. and it has Lazarus's name on it, and it says that he died twice. And I think it's kind yeah, of hilarious. Yeah, the friend of Jesus. Too. Right, friend of Jesus died twice. And uh, you're like, poor Lazarus. You know, I'm sure he was pretty stoked when he was raised from the dead, but then he's like, gosh, I got to go through that again. And and he he did. So uh, it, And it, who was the other person in biblical history to not physically die, to be caught up in a direct named sense. Right, Enoch, right. right? Enoch was also caught up by God and not killed in any direct sense. So some people will think, well, okay, Elijah was assumed up into heaven, so this person's gonna come down, they're going to preach for three and a half years, be killed, and then be assumed back into heaven. So some people are like, well, it's probably Elijah. And then on that same basis, some people say, well, maybe the second person is Enoch. And the interpretation rule is, Given to man to die once, then comes the judgment. But you've already pointed out there is exceptions. And I can also think of a hopefully large number of people who will also be taken up into heaven without dying before this, which are called the church, you and me. So if we have to return down to the earth at some point in order to physically die, I don't see this rule being consistent. There's allowed to be exceptions as long as they're clearly spelled out as such. That would be our problem with the Enoch interpretation because exactly. nothing else is referenced as far as Enoch's significance right, as that's, a witness. That's literally the only evidence that they would point to. Yeah, and that's why we challenge Enoch. it. Exactly, exactly. But so, uh, undoubtedly for Elijah, he called down fire from places that it's normally not coming from. And as well, he stopped it from raining for three and a half years. But what else is interesting about Elijah that gives even uh, those hostile to Christianity, the Orthodox Jews, an expectation of Elijah so much so that whenever they have these remembrance feasts, they leave a chair open for Elijah in case he comes in. Yeah. So in the book of Malachi, actually, there is a prophecy, a direct prophecy that Elijah will come back and have an amazing prophetic ministry. Uh, it says that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers. Now, this is an idea. A lot of people interpret what he's saying is that he will turn people back to the religion of their fathers, right? So in other words, if you see Israel right now, they're not exactly believing the religion of their fathers, right? So a lot of them aren't believing in Christianity, but a lot of them are not even Orthodox, right? A lot of them are secular. A lot of them are atheists. Uh, uh, someone who I like, actually, a guy named Andrew Clavin, who's uh, found as Messiah, he once joked that his dad was an incredibly secularistic man, but when he was reading the Bible, and he just was reading it to figure out more about literature in the United States, his dad freaked out and was like, oh my gosh, I've lost my son. So, and in his mind, he's like, this is the craziest thing. I'm okay to be like a stone-cold atheist in this Jewish household, but if I follow Jesus, you have a problem with that? And it really bothered him in, in, an inst, in an integral way, and it actually led him to Jesus later on, ironically. But at any rate, a lot of Jews are not following their Messiah, and even more Jews, even less Jews, are actually following the traditional faith. So this prophecy of Elijah coming back and having this conversion type of a ministry was something that was prophesied in the book of Malachi. Now, 
John the Baptist had this passage applied to him by Jesus. And Jesus throughout the Gospels actually said, John the Baptist is Elijah, meaning that he's saying for his first coming, Elijah did have to precede him, and Elijah was exemplified through the life of John the Baptist. He wasn't actually Elijah. This isn't reincarnation. Right, it's not reincarnation, but he had the ministry of Elijah. He had that ministry of, like I said, Elijah going against this pagan king and bringing people back to the faith of the one true God. John the Baptist did the same thing. He went right against the powers that be, and he brought people back to their faith in the one true God, preparing the way of the Messiah. So obviously we're not waving away Jesus saying, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah of whom the prophets spoke. But if we are consistent, just like with the two lampstands and the olive trees, there's a near fulfillment, right. there's a far fulfillment, right. there's Isaiah 40 Elijah, and there's Malachi 4 Elijah. Mm. And when we're talking about this appearance of Elijah, why do I identify him as such? Because of the exclusive miracles that only he performed during his ministry. He called down fire from heaven on the altar and people who threatened him, and he kept it from raining for three and a half years. The uh, epistle of James made this point very straightforwardly, and you can read this as well in 1 Kings 17, the first verse, and 1 Kings 18. This is James 5:17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, James is making a point regarding prayer accomplishes things, but he is making a reference to historical Judaism, and what we need to recognize is that that's being referenced here. That's why we identify one of them as Elijah. But what about the second? Obviously, strike the earth with all plagues as much as they desire, but verse 6 here says, they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? Yeah, only one person, Moses, right? There we go. So, so Moses is the only person. Now, there's also additional evidence for Moses. It's not just what this person is doing, which, again, you see water turning to blood, and you see plagues, and your mind goes to Moses for a very good reason. Moses is the guy that seems to exemplify those things. But also, Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, right, he took up three of his apostles up to the top of this mountain. He was transfigured in front of their eyes, shown in his heavenly glory. And on that mountain, two people came down from heaven and talked with him. And they would be Elijah and Moses. So for this reason, as well as what we see these people doing, Moses is the other very likely candidate. Right. All right. So as long as our interpretation method is clear, that that not only sounds reasonable to you, but it's something you can test and take home with you. What then are we told? Well, this is conjecture on our part. Just make sure that we specify that. But if they have power over all plagues, including fire, prevention of rain, turning water to blood, then there was no need to mention these specific plagues. But they do in order to tell us what a name wouldn't always. There could be a lot of people named Moisha or one drawn out of water, and then a lot of people named Elijah or God or uh, praise the Lord. But when we're talking about the emphasis on these plagues in particular, we are interpreting that as an identification, not just as a fulfillment of Zechariah, but also an identifying of them in history. All that being said, though, there are those who would take other views, some even including the Apostle John because of the previous chapter. They'd say you must prophesy again of many people 
peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Once again, that statement isn't made to Elijah. So there's the same issue that we had with Zerubbabel and with uh, others. But just note that the reasons people disagree with us exist, and we'll give them enough credit to at least hear them out. But if you're going to come to a position on scripture, make sure it's informed and information comes from here. That being said, uh, continuing on with this point, uh, let's read verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So they finish their testimony. Three and a half years have passed. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, not physically, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So it mentions a geographic detail. But continuing on, it says, uh, Then those from the peoples, tribes, and tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Nothing in the Greek that would suggest otherwise. Just days. And not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Extremely disrespectful to a Jewish audience. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelled on the earth. Notice, not tortured. They're not referencing the plagues. The people who tried to kill them were, yeah, they were charcoal briquettes. So if the torment is internal, it was because they didn't like hearing what they had to say. There was something convicting coming from their message that kept going out. But we're noting this point to help set the context of where this is at in history. At the three and a half year mark of the tribulation, we believe, at the end of their testimony, the time allotted to them is fulfilled. And they're allowed to be killed. Notice they didn't just happen to be killed. They were allowed to be killed from the beast of the bottomless pit. We'll explain more on this in chapter 12 and 13. But uh, spiritually, the place they will die will be called Sodom and Egypt in Genesis 18 and in Exodus 1, prime examples of wickedness in Jewish culture and objects of God's wrath in history as well. But the literal location is where Jesus was crucified. So that's Jerusalem. Continuing on, though, this will be a very ungodly state at their time in history, so much so that the deaths of these prophets will be celebrated like a holiday worldwide. Uh, regarding the details as to the timing of this event, though, their ministry is fulfilled and they're allowed to be killed. And as well, a time is allowed for the world to celebrate. The people who would put this at the end of the tribulation have a problem because usually the last three and a half days of the tribulation, there won't be time or resources left for them to celebrate and send gifts to one another. Right. And, and beyond that, these prophets had a very particular location of their ministry. So in order for the Antichrist to show himself to be the Antichrist, to, to, to actually commit the abomination that causes desolation, he has to enter into the temple. Where those two guys are, and they've been burning people. Right. So. <laughs> so they're pretty good bouncers, right? He's, he's not getting in. So for that amount of time, we know that he can't get in, he can't do this abomination, and we know that the abomination happens at the middle part. That's Daniel so, 924. Yep. Right. We're given the 42 months. We know that the, uh, the tribulation period is separated into two sections of three and a half years. So it lines up pretty nicely with these guys beginning their ministry at the very beginning of the tribulation period. And like my father and Bo mentioned last week, if someone comes to you or the thought occurs to you, what if I'm one of the two witnesses? <laughs> Things have to happen first before those guys show up. So 
just know our response will be, that's nice, and then men in white coats will come and I will help them pin you. So that point being made. Also note 2 Thessalonians 1 through 2's point would be kaput, and we don't want to do that either. But when we're talking about the Antichrist's revelation of himself through peace, it won't be through the execution of these prophets. So it couldn't be before the tribulation either. We put this, and the verses that are about to follow will clarify this as well, at the halfway point of the tribulation. Right. And, and also this is very important to understand when you're going through the book of Revelation. It's not told strictly chronologically. No, right. Categorically, we've that's got right. Judgment, we've got salvation. Judgment, salvation. Spiritual insight, earthly insight. That's right. And and by the way, the the need for chronological storytelling is kind of a Western phenomenon. Uh, most cultures don't really do that. They do, as as you said, like sections, segments. Um, and you see that it could kind of frustrate you sometimes. And if you're reading like the book of first Kings or something, I'm reading through second Kings right now in my personal time. And you're like, okay, you're reading through all this. And then it like rewinds and goes to the other kingdom. And you're like, what? it tells you yeah. what time it was, but you don't like having to think that way. That's right. So you do have to, to pay attention. And in this section, we see that. And that's why Sean said that when you go back, when you think, uh, reflexively back to the 144,000 witnesses that we've already talked about, it would make sense that these guys would be the start of the Jewish revolution, the Jewish movement coming back to their Messiah. The last revival. That's right. This, this amazing revival happening that these guys are starting it and Jews are seeing it. Now, uh, I want to ask you a question. I, when I was reading this section today, this is the section that most uh, stood out to me, and I want to talk a little bit about it. But, Seven through ten. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, real quick, why do you think God would allow these guys to be killed, though? Well, I think, I hate to reference passages that were also quoted by Satan, but there was a psalm that uh, he quoted, you know, uh, his an- he will give his angels charge over you to bear you up, and then he leaves out a sentence, lest they dash your foot against a stone. And he applied this to Jesus out of context to tempt him into trying God. He tested scripture with scripture. But the whole psalm is, and this is laying the point out, in all your ways. In what ways? The one who makes God their refuge and the one who guides them in life. So if I'm doing the things God's called me to do, he's going to make sure I finish that journey. Doesn't mean it won't be abused along the way. Doesn't mean it won't face opposition. But I think that like these prophets in a very direct and supernatural way are protected only until the three and a half year point. It's a good reflection on the same confidence that we can have as believers, knowing that I'm not just doing things for God. You can do dumb stuff and face consequences. You say, I did it in the name of God. Yeah, but he didn't call you to it. If I, on the other hand, I'd say, okay, God's called me to this, but I'm facing opposition. We're going like full-blown Jeremiah persecution. My family's abandoned me. You know, I'm facing a coup d'etat from my son like David, all these other things. They were where God wanted them, but is God going to take care of me? And he did. I'm in Jerusalem. People are trying to kill me every single day, but that's not new. But if on the other hand, you're trying to piece together, why am I facing this opposition? Well, I'm here to observe that. So obviously the opposition hasn't succeeded. Again, Psalm 91, um, let me get the exact verse so that everyone here listening can benefit from that as well. Verses 9 through 13 are the ones that were quoted. There was a quote, I'm not sure where it came from originally, but I'll make it, so put that in your footnote, I guess. The man of God is invincible until the Lord calls him home. When he calls you home, 
this world's going to go the way of the world, whether that's through old age or through hostile intervention. But I think that would be the reason why at this point they are killed physically, because the purpose not only of their ministry, but the 144,000 has been completed. And the timing of their death is one that God's not only aware of, but uh, ironically would accomplish far more than if they were the ones to decide, no, I want to make it to the end of the tribulation. Yeah, no, uh, great points. Uh, like I said, as I was reading this this morning, this is the section that stuck out to me most. So I just want to draw out two uh, reflections that I've had on it that I think I, I thought were really cool for me. And I hope they benefit you guys as well. The first one is the nature of Satan's power within this world. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, uh, it seems very dark. Right? It seems like Satan is winning. It seems like evil is winning until obviously God pulls out the wind. And it could sometimes, when people are reading sections like this of Scripture, especially this section, it could produce in people kind of a dualistic view of good and evil. So the dualistic view of good and evil is that good and evil are kind of two sides to the same coin, that God is one side, he's the light side of the force, he's the good power, and then Satan is the evil power, and they're locked into an eternal conflict, and you know, sometimes it looks like Satan is winning, and sometimes it looks like God is winning, and that's how it looks. Uh, dualism is just not true. It's just That's Zoroastrianism, right. non-Christianity. <laughs> just blatantly false. Uh, evil is not a diametrical opposition to good. It's just the deprivation of good. So meaning when we're talking about evil, we're not talking about the equal opposite of God. We're talking about a just lack of God. Much like cold is not the opposite of heat. Cold is just the lack of heat. That's all it is. So when we're talking about Satan, we're talking about uh, the devil, we're talking about someone whose identity is literally rooted in the pre-existence of, of God. The name Satan means opposer, yeah. adversary. You can't be an adversary of an opponent who doesn't exist, right? So Satan's whole identity, his whole purpose is just set up against God. That's it. It uh, wasn't always his identity either. That's not tied into his nature. It's what he became as right. a result of his deprivation from God. That's right. And also, you, you got to remember that Satan is a created being, a created and fallen being. And I like how one pastor puts this. He says, God will only give Satan enough rope to let him hang himself with it, right? So God will allow, right? God will give Satan power at certain points to allow him to do some pretty amazing things, but you have to remember, whatever power God allows for Satan is always aimed at accomplishing God's purposes. See Job. That's right. Exactly. Look at Job and see how God utilizes. So in other words, and this is kind of insane to think about, Satan is a puppet on God's strings. God uses Satan for his purposes, right? Satan is not someone who's like some renegade demon out there and God's being thwarted all the time. He's like, ah, oh, darn it, Satan again. You know, I need to, I need to get that guy eventually. You know, he, that's not what's going on. God is allowing Satan to maneuver in this world to accomplish his purposes. And no, he's not orchestrating Satan's desires. He's using them to accomplish greater ones that without the opposition wouldn't be possible. Exactly. Exactly. So whenever we have this idea, this fear of evil winning, right? Evil beating us, evil beating the world. You know, if you're afraid of your flesh, if you're afraid of politics, if you're afraid of the crazy things happening around you, just remember that God only allows the opposition enough 
power so that they can undo themselves with it. Just as God allowed Satan enough power to crucify his son, only so that that crucifixion could destroy Satan, God will allow opposition and evil within your life only for the purpose of making you more like God, right? That's the whole thing. So God will allow evil in your life, but only so that that evil can accomplish God's good purposes within your life. Satan's not winning. Satan's not destroying you. God is not unaware, just like Job, where when you're in the middle of it, it definitely seems like God is unaware. But when God shows up at the end of Job, that's what he has to instruct him with. He's like, no, I haven't fallen asleep. Everything that's happening right now, the way that the nations are moving, all of it, even though they think they're going against God, they are accomplishing God's purpose, right? All of us will glorify God. And we will either be objects that glorify God's mercy, and that's what I want, or we will glorify God's justice. So this is a very important point, and we need to be aware of it. Now, the next thing that's interesting is the capacity of, did God let these guys down? Did God allow them to die, and was that wrong? Well, listen to this. This is from the Apostle Paul. Listen to the way he talks. This is in 2 Timothy. He is facing the, it's not the guillotine, but the sword, right? They're about to cut his head off. And look at that. Look at how he talks about it. This is verse 17. He says, also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So he's like, hey, I'm not going to get eaten by a lion. That's pretty cool. Uh, but verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was looking down the barrel, figuratively and literally, of his demise. And he says, the Lord will deliver me. Now, he doesn't mean I'm not going to die. He means God is going to use, remember, we're talking about evil being used for God's purpose. God is going to use the evil of the Roman Empire to execute me to do what? To bring me into his glorious kingdom, right? That's pretty radical. God is going to allow these guys to be executed only so that he can prove that he is the master of death itself and raise these guys from the dead. Right? How does he do that? Which is pretty amazing. And we'll get to it in one second. The second thing I wanted to point out in this, which I, I thought was really radical and interesting, we have to remember the culture that this is happening in. This is a culture that will do something that makes Hitler look like a schoolboy, right? This organization, this government, is going to be so evil, it's going to be so wicked, it is going to make every previous iteration of empire look like nothing in comparison, right? All these things, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, all these guys are just pointing to the eventual rise of this person, this man of perdition, this antichrist. And you got to remember, this guy is described as having, in Revelation chapter 6, as having a bow, but no arrows, Meaning this is not some evil Superman or something that is like going around and rounding people up and forcing people to do evil deeds. This is a person who will be hailed. This is a person who will be loved. This is a person who will be elected by people to be over them. They want the Antichrist over them. This means that this culture that we're talking about is, dare I say, a satanic culture. It's a satanic culture. 
And it's interesting to me. I, I love studying history. I love studying sociology because it fascinates me. Kind of a morbid curiosity. I used to, you know, I was in the military, so obviously I, I wanted to study evil. I wanted to study pathologies of evil and wickedness to understand it better, to understand my enemy better. But when you study organizations like Hitler, like the Nazi government, the interesting thing is, is again, Hitler was loved by the Nazis. Now, it's easy for people to think about Hitler as just like, oh, he's an aberration. He's just this evil, crazy guy that seized power and did a lot of evil things and he got killed. You have to remember, Hitler was elected. And one psychologist puts it this way. He says, imagine living through the Holocaust, being in Germany. He said, now, mo when most of us picture ourselves in that state, we either think of ourselves as a persecuted minority, like a Jew, trying to survive, or we think of ourselves as just the average citizen trying to just go along to get along. What we never think is that we could be a Nazi, that we could be one of these members, these evil people, murdering people at the levels that the Nazi government was. We never even think we could be in that state. And one of the most radical stories I ever heard that illustrated this for me was a guy named Adolf Eichmann. Um, Adolf Eichmann was a guy who was in the Holocaust. He was a Jew. He was in the Holocaust. Just his whole life annihilated. And uh, I'm sorry, Adolf Eichmann was an architect of, of, this, of this type of thing, these evil death camps. And he persecuted a guy named Yehiel Denor. And after the war ended, Adolf Eichmann ran off to Argentina. They eventually captured him brought him over to justice, and they had Yehiel Denor. This guy had been beaten by this guy, persecuted by this guy, lived through his death camps for years, and they had him testify against Adolf Eichmann. When he walked in, he just broke down and started to weep after he saw this guy and wasn't able to testify. They had to drag him out. Years after that, Mike Wallace at 60 Minutes brings in Yehiel Denor, and he walks him through the clip, and he's like, what was going on in your mind? Were you just so blown away by this guy's evil that you couldn't stand up to him? And he said, no. He said, all my years in the death camps, I had pictured the Nazis as being this inhuman race of demons. And when I walked in and I saw Adolf Eichmann, you know what I saw? I saw a man, just like me. And I knew that if a man was capable of that level of evil, so am I. And that knowledge brought me to my knees. I couldn't recover from it. You have to understand, as a man, as mankind, we are capable of every type of evil. We cannot relegate these people to monsters of the past and say, we could never do that, right? This is what the Pharisees did, right? They're like, we would never persecute the prophets. If we lived during the time of Elijah, we'd love those guys. And Jesus is like, you're about to do something way worse than those guys. You're about to kill me. You're about to kill the son of God. We never think that we're capable of evil, but we are. We are frighteningly capable of evil. And I want you to look at this, this holiday that they celebrate. Holidays or holy days show a lot about what a culture is all about. And usually holidays are set up to celebrate some sort of a facet of beauty of a culture, right? Like the 4th of July, Independence Day, where we celebrate our independence from England and the start of our Republican democracy, right? We're really proud of that and it's really cool. Or we celebrate things like Veterans Day, where we remember the bold and the brave men and women who went out and risked their lives in military during the time of our country's greatest needs. And you can go down our various holidays as a country, as a nation, and we can think about it. We're about to celebrate Easter. 
where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. That's what holidays are supposed to be about. Notice what this culture thinks is a day of celebration. Death. The execution of two people that they hated. That's what they celebrate. That's radical. This is why I call it a satanic culture. It's a culture that is not for anything. It is a culture that is only set up in opposition against what they don't like. Now, when you think about, again, when you think about the Nazi culture, what led them there? And there's been a lot of studies of what's gone on. But a big part of it, I'm going to lay this out and let me know if this sounds familiar. There was a couple factors that led to the rise of Hitler. Number one was social disillusion. After World War I, we broke down all the social institutions that Germany had. We destroyed them, annihilated them. And because of that, social cohesion went by the wayside. People did not have these institutions to conglomerate together and to be members of community. So what they instead focused on is increased education. So Germany became a highly educated country, but not a cohesive one. The family structure was in ruins. The institutions were in ruins. There was no genuine community structure that was developed. Beyond that, there was a severe hatred for the people that had caused the decline of their civilization. There wasn't really, again, there wasn't really a strong band around what they wanted. There was just a strong band about what they disliked. And Hitler was able to play on that because here's the thing, as mankind, we long for community, we long for unity with others. And if we can't get it through positive means, we will assemble together in opposition to what we hate. And a community that is assembled around hatred is a community that can only do three things, steal, kill, and destroy. That's all that community can do, and that's what was set up. Beyond that, they had a lot of anxiety, free-floating anxiety. They couldn't latch it onto any particular thing. They were just genuinely frightened about what was happening and what had happened to them, and they looked for a strong man that they could rally around to make them feel courageous. Right? Now, when I say that, does that sound familiar at all to people when they look at the state of the world? Free-floating anxiety, a lack of social cohesion, and a desire to be in opposition to what they hate as opposed to be for something that they approve of, to build something as opposed to tear it down. And don't think that Christians are immune to this, by the way, right? A lot of Christian movements, including in this country, have been set up in opposition to what we hate as opposed to being for God, Right? And that's why there's so much, there's that joke that your dad always says that Christians are the first to circle the wagons and shoot one another. The reason why people do that is because, again, they don't have enough knowledge of what are we for? Are we for the beauty of God and the gospel? Or are we just against the sickness of flesh and sin? Do we have something that we love? Or are we only meeting here together to rail against what we hate? That's very, that line is very easy to cross and to feel righteous when you cross it. So be aware of the pathologies of evil and wickedness and how it can move in our hearts. Be aware when you sit around and you gather together as believers only to rail against what you hate as opposed to worship who we love. These guys were not here. Remember, they're wearing sackcloth. They're not here to rail against the culture. They're here to save the culture. 
They're here to love the world like Christ. Let us not fall into the trap and the snare of Satan, right? Set up our identities as to what we love, not what we despise. But anyway, let's, let's finish up these last couple verses because we got a couple minutes. Yeah, verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they, not everybody, they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In that same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. Now, before I read the last verse that'll set the chronology, giving glory does not mean that they came to saving knowledge of God. They gave credit to where this earthquake came from. Let's just clarify that. But verse 14 the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, this is as far as we want to get to tonight, but that is essentially setting the timeline for us. The calling up of these two witnesses, three and a half days after their death, concludes the sixth trumpet judgment. The uh, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 13 notes that the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments are pronounced as three woes. This event takes place at the second of them, the resurrection of these saints in a very public setting, and they're calling up to heaven in the eyes of those who killed them, and we're celebrating them, and probably when they were telling them, cut the cameras, don't let the people see this, they saw it, and it was recognized with the fallout that followed as a literally half of the planet's population is dying all around them. They're recognizing, they're not questioning, they're not left with these ambiguous philosophical possibilities. Is this climate change? Is this just poor stewardship of our own resources? Should we just vote in better officials? No, they know God is doing this. And what's key about this situation is, first of all, if we're going to, and this is a quick aside, say, oh, this is a proof of the mid-tribulation rapture, it's a moot point because it only mentions the two witnesses. That's not relevant, though. <laughs> The preceding earthquake and the destruction that follows will conclude this, but note, as that demonic army is doing land office business from Euphrates to wherever they go that would result in a third of the world's remaining population being killed, a chronology for these details is to be kept in mind. This is for your own edification. First, the two witnesses' ministry ends, not begins, at the sixth trumpet's conclusion. There are miracles of these witnesses, including their resurrections, qualify, verify, not disqualify their ministry to the Jews that will minister to the gospel at this time. And of course, their lives will be preserved, as we said, until, not in spite of, the Lord allowing it to happen. So to recap all of this, like the two witnesses in ministering to the 144,000, even a miraculous ministry isn't meant just to show off. It's to invest in the lives of people. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.22, you can remember that. Commit these things to faithful men who will teach others also. That's our calling as well. Like the miracles used to protect the lives of the witnesses until their purpose on earth is done, we can have the same confidence that we will be safe based on the sole condition that we are where God wants us to be. Now, don't follow Satan's quoting out of context in this saying, oh, whatever I do, no consequences. No, be smart, be informed about what God's actually called you to do. Remember Psalm 91. And finally, the worst this world can do ends up sending us home. 
the worst God can do is no longer the case because of what he's done for us, which we'll be celebrating and remembering in two days. But remember this for now, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, do not fear men who can only kill the body, fear him who can not only kill your body, but also throw your soul into damnation. We have a lot to be thankful for, and we have a lot to remember this week, but when it comes to the things that we can learn from even these future events, note that the revelation of the book of Revelation is that of Jesus Christ. His faithfulness to not only get his word out, fulfill his promises to his people, but also spell this out in such a way where we can benefit from it today. Would you like to pray for us? Yeah. Father, we thank you and we praise you so much, Lord, uh, for your incredible faithfulness to us in our own personal lives, but Lord, your faithfulness to accomplish your promises throughout human history. Lord, you have never missed a beat, you have never made a mistake, and you never will. Lord, everything is planned out and mapped out to the end. Lord, so as we go through these uncertain times, these fearful times, we have to remember, Lord, that you are in control. I pray, God, that we would be able to stand against the evil of the culture that we're surrounded by without giving in to the anger and the frustration that is so easy to do. Lord, help us to remember that's not so much what we stand against, but it is what we stand for. Lord, and you are beautiful, and you are worthy, and we want to pursue you. We love you, Lord, and in your name, amen.